Father, we look to the day. We look to the day when, unlike stadiums that we have built for football or basketball or baseball, when the crowd roars, you feel it in your bones, one day that stadium will be all the universe. And all the angels and all the people will cry out praise to God and give Him glory. Lord, it's to You, only to You, that that glory is due. As we look into Your Word this morning, Lord, as we've sang songs, as we've prayed, all of these things, Lord, to Your glory. And may the result of that This afternoon, tomorrow, throughout the week, the actions and deeds, Lord, that are consistent with walking worthy of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank You, His name. Glorious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So for the last ten months, we have been asking and answering the question, what is love? It's a journey well taken. And it's, uh, as some of you know, when I'm doing my sermon preparation, what I do is I will visualize uh, people in my office, some of whom are you, and I ask questions. And I, I want to know what does this text mean to you? I also think of it in terms of success. I also think of it in terms of struggle whether it's financial or physical or relational or whatever it might be, whether it's seasons of life and are uh, in terms of hopes and dreams that are not my own but belong to others. And this week I realized after years of doing this, and I have done this for years and, and years, I have left out an important contingent. What do children think? (laughs) One might be tempted to think that after discussing love for the past 43 weeks, how much more can we learn and certainly how much can we learn from children. But I think children can can teach us a, a great deal. Now, sometimes children's wisdom can be a bit tricky. Like, like Patrick, 10 years old, who said, never trust a dog to watch your food. (laughs) or Joel poor poor Joel (laughs) never tease your sister when she's holding a bat (laughs) and Talia age 11 when your mom is mad at your dad don't let her comb your hair (laughs) so given that we are entering uh, into the season of Operation Christmas Child, I, I thought it would be fitting that we should show a video done by Samaritan's Purse. What is love? And that will give us a child's perspective. Uh, no matter where our minds end up intellectually as adults, our hearts must always be like these little children. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 18.3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I pray that we do just that. And I pray that as I give this message, you'll be able to at least perceive some bit of children's wisdom in it. And so John, the disciple, Jesus loved as a son, and he proved that on the cross when he put his mother, Mary, under her care, it dives even deeper into our understanding of love. Not This is an interesting text because he's not talking about love to non-believers. He's not talking about love to the world. He's not talking about the need of God's love to everyone. Rather, he's bringing into focus believers' love for other believers. So let's turn into 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, where we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So in this text, John is going to show us three primary reasons for us to love the other believers. In other words, this is the love that's expressed in the context of the local assembly. This is love that we share with one another. First, it's because of the source of love, and that would be God. Second, it's because it reflects our parental heritage. And finally, it's because it's an indication that we know God. So let's look at this a little closer. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Well, that's for that first reason, is because the source of love is, in fact, God. And one of the things that to keep clear here is John is talking uh, to believers. He's talking to other people who have made Jesus Christ uh, the Lord of their life. They have trusted Christ as their Savior. It's also a term of endearment. I know maybe in some cultures it's common for people to refer to somebody as uh, beloved, uh, but certainly uh, not in, in English. That's not something that we use very much, but it's a real term of endearment. He's writing to believers. He's writing to regenerate saints. And as saints, he fully expect, he expected them and he fully expected for those who followed, that is us, to display love. And the end of verse 8 reads, because God is love. So we see that uh, where you have the source is God, but then he also makes this statement, 
God is love in verse 8. Now, this is the second time in John's epistle that he said something about God's nature here. The first time was in chapter 1 and verse 5 where he said, God is light. And then there's two other scriptures. And that's it. There's the four that we have here. John 4:24. Three of them are by John. Where Jesus told the woman at the well that God is spirit. And then finally in Hebrews we learn that our God is a consuming fire. And so John tells us that those of us who are connected with God will love. Now this, this statement, God is love, cannot be reversed. I know it's popular today where you can say that when it's God is love, you can say love is God. Well, you can only do that in English. In Greek, it's quite impossible because what's not translated in Greek is the definite article. So, and that we find is in front of God. And the uh, love is, uh, is what's called anarthrous. It doesn't have an article at all. So, you can't flip them. And a lot of people in our culture try to do that. They try to say that, well, love is all that you need. And it's just not the case. It is, in fact, part of God's character, one of His communicable attributes that He gives to us. That means because He loves, we can love. And that goes for everybody. Because we're created in the image of God, we have the ability to love. But I believe that the true ability to love in the fullness of that word, only comes through Jesus Christ. One of uh, Satan's favorite tactics is to take that which God has given for our good and to either overemphasize it, de-emphasize it, over-regulate, under-regulate, however, in some way, to put it out of balance. We see that all the way back in the garden in the Garden of Eden, where Satan asks Eve, did God actually say? And Satan was able to get Eve to disparage the freedoms that God had given. He was able to get her to add to the ban uh, regarding the fruit and to weaken the consequence of that sin. Primarily here, even though Satan used the emotions, what he did was he attacked the mind. And how does this reveal itself today? And that is that the most prevalent way that we see this, particularly in the church, is knowledge that's out of balance with love. And or love that's out of balance with uh, knowledge. They have to be held in tension together co-equally. Otherwise, we, we, we get lost. Love absent biblical knowledge, uh, that just leads to blindness to sin and, and that also a blindness to the hard bent of our human nature to rebel against God. That's what we do naturally. The goodness of human nature, which is how that would be then defined, and sin is seen as something that society does. If you've ever wondered why the push in the world is always toward the society and not the individual, that's the answer 
right there. It's society, it's not the individual. Consequently, salvation is not through your personal relationship with Christ, but through corporate change in our society. So, conversely, knowledge without biblical love leads to an unreasoned hardness of the mind, a, a brittleness of the spirit, a, a rigidity that is to be resisted. And uh, it ultimately ends up with the ability to only be able to associate with like-minded people. I love this uh, little quip from Robert Owen. He said this in 1828, All the world is strange, save thee and me, and even thou art a little strange. (laughs) I mean, these comments... Uh, you may you may have thought of them in the last few minutes as an aside, but they're not an aside at all. And they are critical when seen in the light of verse 6, where it reads, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So it's in the knowing of God, not in the knowing of truth that we understand this, the last sentence in that verse. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By what? What's the near antecedent? Knowing God is what does this. And we understand in the following text, he's going to explain that what we're talking about in terms of determining the spirit of truth from the spirit of error is about knowing God as evidence through loving others. That's how this process works here. The only way to know God is to be born of God. And that is marked, it's, it's pronounced by the fact that we love one another. So the second reason it, that we love God is that it, it reflects our spiritual parentage. It says, and everyone who loves has been born from God. So I've enjoyed the study of genealogy for some 40 plus years now. Actually, a little bit more than that. And so I checked this morning in our database because I'm always curious. People, you know, when I talk about this, I'll say, oh, we have 10 or 11,000 names in our database. So I... I checked it this morning. We have exactly 19,610 people in our database. (laughs) That's a lot of folk. (laughs) Did you know, I mean, just do the math. We've got some math whizzes in here, okay? I don't do public math, but I will read off what I have previously written. So that you know that if you take and and, and double the number of your ancestors, right? Which is, you've got two parents, right? And then you have four grandparents, right? And by the time you get back to ten, you are up to 1,024 individuals who had to meet, fall in love, and uh, have a child in order for you to be here right now, right at this instance. Now, we run into a little problem. And the problem is when we're trying to figure out like Barb's heritage. So she's the 32nd great-granddaughter of Charlemagne. All of you are. However, we can 
Prove it with her. Okay, now here's the deal. The problem is, is when you do the math, just do the math. You can't do the math in your head. Nobody's that smart, but you got little calculators. You can do the math. By the time you get back to Charlemagne, you have one trillion people who are living at the same time in order to produce this child. My wife. Yeah, I know. Weren't that many people, but it had to happen. I mean, it's like that's a biological necessity. It had to happen. The world's population wouldn't remotely cover those numbers. So where did our ancestors go? Well, here's the deal. We think of genealogy as a mathematical inverse pyramid. Okay, so if you start with you, it goes like this. And it just goes, right? It's not. It's actually a diamond. It goes like this and then like this. So the fact is 80% of your early progenitors, is that what they're called? Anyway, the people who came before you, they're also related to each other. (laughs) So that you can have people in your direct line and the same people are in their direct line. And in fact, that is about 80%. The reason for that is very simple. Up until a few hundred years ago, everybody married their first cousin or second cousin. And the notion that, that, that we marry out way outside the family is actually a very recent idea. And so consequently... It's, it gets it goes back, so it, it's like it's like this. Now the thing is, is in all of those stories, and it's about after the tenth generation that it starts it starts to head back to a uh, point. In fact, our research shows that Barbara and I are eighth cousins on two separate lines, entirely two separate <laughs> lines altogether. So what's the point? Point is this: many scientists, in fact. Uh, uh, one of our own, who's now in California, uh, Richard uh, Gunasekera, believes that 99.9% of all DNA, the DNA, it, we, we all share. So the differences among us is 0.01% DNA. That's what makes us biologically different. And who created DNA? Well, I'll give you a clue. God did. God did and God also has, in addition to the one whose mind concedes spiritual or uh, physical DNA, also conceived a spiritual DNA. When you are born of God, it is in your nature which can be resisted but it is in your nature to love the brothers and the sisters. It is natural for us to do this. We should. I have witnessed uh, from the east in Japan to the west in Europe, the Middle East, all the way as, as far to Oman, this happen wherever you have been. You've witnessed this happen when believers come together They accept one another as being in the same family. It's a natural thing that we do. It's only later that things get a little bit tricky. (laughs) 
as we relate to one another. And so what you have is something that simply makes sense. God is love. That's part of His nature. He has created us in His image so we can generally love. Through Christ, we specifically are channeled into or brought into that kind of divine love. Agape is what it's called if you're interested in knowing that. The third reason for believers to love one another is that love is indicative of knowing God. And this one's a little trickier because you have to turn a negative into a positive here. But what it says is anyone who does not love does not know. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we need to remember that John is not addressing the question of a lack of love in all. He's talking specifically about an absence of love in, in believers. And that absence is evidenced by, uh, or what that evidence shows is that person doesn't know God. So a lack of love means that that person does not know God. Now, this is, this is interesting because there are two things going on here, and I don't want you to go in where a lot of people have gone. That not knowing God means not being a believer. You'll note that in this, what he does is he flips, because in the first part of the verse before that, he says, born and know. Born, and he has the two things. The second one, it's only the one, love, born and then, I think he says love. And the second one here, he just says love. We need to remember he's not addressing this question of a lack of love out there. He's talking about love in the body. And so if a person does love in the context of the body, then guess what? It says that they know him. So he doesn't say that such a person was not born of God. In that negative statement, only the last part is, uh, is, is mentioned. The only knows is repeated, right? And I'll try to explain this a, a little bit more. Because love here, properly understood, love is not a consequence, uh, or it is a consequence of, and it's not a precondition for being born again. It's something that God places inside of you that then is expressed outside to others. It's not something that you have to do in order for God to save you. It's the same, uh, it's, it's so similar that it takes you right back to John 3, 3 through 6, where we have the story of Nicodemus. However, unlike Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus where he's saying, you must be, you need to be born again, John here is describing the state of the person. Those who love believers reveal the source of their spiritual birth. So it is possible to be born of God and not know Him, according to this text. Tennessee Williams a great American playwright. He wrote a story. It was entitled Something by Tolstoy. 
It is a story about a, a Russian Jew. His name was uh, Jacob Brodsky. And he was in love with a, a French uh, woman. They owned a bookstore in France. And her name was Lila. She had a lovely voice. And she was uh, outgoing. And she was just filled with the vigor of life. He was a fairly retiring sort of a person. And he wanted to... Uh, simply run the bookstore that his that his father had in the future, but he wanted to marry uh, Lila, and so uh, and so he went to college. He did a little work there, and then, but his father became ill and died, and so he went back to run the bookstore. Now that he was uh, back home running the bookstore, he felt he could marry Lila, and so he did, and so they got married. And uh, he was just happy as a clam, reading his books and sitting behind his desk in the bookstore and cataloging his uh, books and so forth. Uh, it suited him well. It did not suit her well at all. She was ready to rock. And she, so uh, there was a, a uh, vaudeville company that came through and this guy recognized her voice. A real, a real talent. So he convinced her, "Hey, uh, come uh, do the show with us. You can sing, you can make some money, you can travel, you can meet a lot of people." And so she said, "Yeah, that's what I'm going to do." And so as she was preparing to leave, Jacob stops her and he says, "He says, listen, I know you need to do this. I know you want to do this, but here, take this key. Keep this key with you." Because one day you will return to me. And so she took the key and she uh, gave, uh, she put it away. Uh, Let me read what he wrote exactly. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can get away from it. So even though their lives were called in different directions, there, there was the love that was there. And so she kissed him and left. So to escape his pain, he simply dove into his books even more and more. And he became more and more reclusive. He became more and more distant from people. He became less and less where he would even go outside. He spoke little. He, he ate little. He did little. The only thing that he did was immerse himself in his books and he grew lonely, and he grew bitter. So 15 years later, during the Christmas season, Lila came back. She had the key. And she walked into the store, and he rose from his desk, but he didn't recognize her. And he says, do you want a book? She was disappointed that he didn't recognize her, but she gained her control And she said, I do, I want a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. And then she proceeded to tell him their story. The childhood story about two people who were deeply in love with one another and who decided to marry, but how that one chose to seek a career and to seek great success, but she could never relinquish the key that her husband had given her when she left. 
but his face showed no recognition. He had lost touch with his heart. He no longer knew the purpose of his waiting and grieving, and all that he remembered was the waiting and the grieving itself. She said to him, remember it. Remember it. You must remember the story of Lila and Jacob. After a long pause, he said, you know, there is something familiar about the story. I think I've read it. I think I've read it somewhere. It it comes to me that it's something by Tolstoy. Placing the key on the desk, she left. And he returned to his reading. You know, they were still married. But he did not know her. Now, while all metaphors ultimately fail, and this one does too, principally because God would never leave us. He would never forsake us. There are nevertheless those who are born again, but for one reason or another, simply read books and do not know and are not aware when the glory of God passes by. They do not know Him, but they are born of Him. This is an important distinction that we make. So then, I mean, how do we know that He doesn't leave us? How do we know that He doesn't forsake us? Here's the answer. It just follows right along in the text. This is how. This is how the love of God was manifested towards us. God sent His only Son into the world that we might have life through Him. God's motivation for sending His Son was for our need. It wasn't for His benefit. What He did, He did to give us life. And when we listen in to the conversation with Jesus and God in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that there was, there was no other way. I mean, Jesus says if there's any other way, and there's not. There's no other way. And this makes it clear that God's love and the actions that followed from that were not a response to us. He initiated this. It was motivated purely from Him and not from us. The reason I mention that is because there are some who say that God just looked over the span of the future and said, hey, that, that one believed. Oh, cool. Let me... Let me rubber stamp that one. Oop, there's another one. As, as, if, as if his choice was determined by what he saw in the future, which makes a fundamental error. In order to see the future, you have to be able to determine the future. While you say the prophets saw the future, they did not. They were shown the future. Only God sees into the future. Only God knows how all the lines intersect in our lives. Only God knows these things. And He is the one who initiated. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. It wasn't my eye diffused a quickening ray. God did. He's the one who brings life. He's the one who saves and makes us whole. 
Beloved, if God loved us in this manner. So now we have this. This is okay. So this is how we know that God will never leave us or forsake us. He gave His only Son that we might have life. Beloved, if God loved us in this manner, if this is how God would treat you, how should you treat one another? How should we be with one another? If God sent His Son to stand in your place and to take your punishment, then how ought we to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? If God took the full sword of God's if Christ took the full sword of God's justice in Him on the cross, then how should we behave? And then we come to this enigmatic statement. I mean, it's obvious how we should behave. We should be loving and caring. We come to this really enigmatic statement. No one has ever seen God. So this is reminiscent of... Uh, Exodus 33, where Moses asked to see God, and he was told, no, you can't. And, and yet we see other places where, hey, you saw this about God, this about God, and the other thing about God, physically, those were theophanies. No one has ever seen uh, God. And the way this uh, phrase is structured, it's absolutely clear that no man has ever seen him, certainly not in his fullness and not in his glory. The word that he uses is a very particular word that has to do with, yes, physical sight, but underneath that physical sight is comprehension. It is understanding. And so what he's saying is this, no one has ever seen God, but, but if you love one another, then what happens? God abides in you. He abides in us and that's how we see God. We don't see God in the fullness of His glory, but you have to understand that you're the only Christ that some people will ever see. The living out of Christ's life through you is as close to the presence of God that they will ever come. God's abiding presence in us it is amazing truth. This is the same truth that Jesus taught about His disciples. He said this, and I want you to hear these words carefully. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty five. He did not say this. If you have love for one another, you will be my disciples. They were His disciples regardless. We are born of God if we have trusted Christ regardless. All of us fail in this life. And a part of that failure is a failure to love. What he's saying in John 13 is that the world would recognize them as his disciples because of their love for one another. Sometimes the stuff in the church can be really difficult. When, when I was uh, 22 and newly married, Barbara and I went to Emmaus, and one of the things that we had to do as part of our coursework was to write a 
paper on a, a book that was uh, entitled Hudson, Taylor, and Maria. It was a wonderful read if you ever get an opportunity to read it. Maria Dyer was Hudson Taylor's uh, first wife, and because Hudson Taylor, she died of cholera, but because Hudson Taylor's second wife is the one who wrote everything, uh, if you know much about Hudson Taylor, you probably know about her, but you don't know about Maria very much. But she was well acquainted with the trouble. You know, what they did, do you know that the, um, the government of Britain actually wanted to bring Hudson Taylor and his mission home because they were blaming him for beginning an international kerfuffle between China and England? I mean, it was, it was that high up. So they know, they, they know, they know conflict. And uh, she said something very interesting uh, uh, when she was writing about um, that and the church. She says this, As to the harsh judgings of the world... That's what she's talking about. She's talking about how the world judged their mission operation in China. Or the more painful misunderstandings of Christian brethren. I generally feel that the best plan is to go about our work and leave the rest to God. <laughs> they, they knew the pain of the lack of love from the state, from people around them, and even from the church. And even though they lost five of their nine children, her grave marker reads this, For her to live was Christ, and to die was gain. In a day when so many are self-absorbed and care more about what they can get rather than what they can give. We need a renewal of this sacrificial kind of love. And in that regard, it's an extension of last week's message. It was God's love for us that sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. And it's that kind of giving love that our world, and more particularly, that the church needs today. Therefore, love God as we should. And our love for one another will simply, naturally flow. Father, we are deeply grateful that you are the giver of life. You are the one who cares for us more than anyone else. You know us deeply. You love us purely. So we thank you for that. We thank You, Father, that we should be marked as a people who love because You're the source of love, who love because it's in really our spiritual DNA and love because it is something that demonstrates that we know You. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.